All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, today is the first week of Advent. Uh, for Advent this year, we are um, we're looking at an upside-down Christmas, in case you were wondering why the tree is hung up. That actually doesn't explain why there's a tree hung upside down, other than it goes along with it. To be clear, that was entirely Andrew's idea. Um, yeah. So we're looking at how Jesus does not meet our upside-down expectations, but instead comes to repair what we have broken. Now, for those of you who have, are new to our church or who have not been part of a church that celebrated Advent, let me just give you a quick overview of what this is. Right now, the word Advent simply means coming or arrival. And so at its simplest, Advent is the celebration of the arrival of the Messiah. It's the coming of the King. And it's intended to sort of parallel the anticipation of Israel, who had waited centuries for the promised one that the prophets had spoken about. Right now, anticipation is sort of this buildup of excitement when something is going to happen, but you have to wait for it. And I would say generally, as a people, we are not very good at anticipation. Now, I don't mean that we don't look forward to things, but most of the time, we can get what we want almost immediately, right? Just think about it. If you want to contact someone, right, you, need to, you need to get a hold of someone. You can call them on their cell phone. You can text them. You can send them a message over social media. You can send them an email. You can FaceTime them, right? There's a bunch of ways for you to get a hold of them right now, and you usually are pretty frustrated if they don't respond back within a minute. Kind of crazy to think that almost all of that technology is, I mean, that's relatively new um, in the history of the world. But it goes beyond that, right? If you want to watch a movie now, what do you do? You don't even have to drive to a blockbuster, right? You just stream it. You want to buy something, you can order it right this second and it will be delivered to your door within two days. Don't have money to pay for it? Put it on credit, right? We can get what we want immediately. And I'll just say as an aside, this makes it really hard to shop for some people, because it's basically like, what do you have that you don't, or what do you want that you don't already have? Because if you want it, you already bought it, because you can get it right away. Now, there's still some events out in the future. There's things that we look forward to, but even then, even as we wait, we have hundreds of things to keep us busy until it gets here. And so generally, as a people, we don't anticipate, we distract ourselves. And so at Christmas time, we celebrate what is a God-directed time of anticipation. And the first week of Advent specifically focuses on the time spent waiting. The first week of Advent is the week of hope. And in it, we look back to God's promises to his people through the prophets. Now, the people of Israel had to hold on to all of these promises tightly. Because by the time that Jesus arrived in Bethlehem, They had been waiting 400 years. Not just that there was a gap of time between when the promises were made and when they were fulfilled, but they hadn't heard from God in 400 years. This is known as a time of silence. Now, it would be easy to believe that with all of this time passing, that somehow this meant that God wasn't going to come through. That maybe God wouldn't do what he said. And instead of trusting God, it would have been very easy to sort of take things into their own hands. And many did. 
right? A lot of Israelites in the first century had allowed anticipation to become doubt. I would say in the same exact way that a lot of 21st century American Christians have. Because it's very easy for the uncomfortableness of waiting to drive us to sort of this self-centered reality where we really only know and understand and trust what we can control. But part of anticipation is, is, is uncertainty and fear, not knowing. And what we need to balance out all of this unknown is hope. Right? In order to, to trust that God will do what he promises, we have to know who he is and how he has been faithful in the past. And so we're going to spend some time in the prophets today to see how God fulfills his plan in the coming of Jesus Christ. Because hope is not found by alleviating the tension, but by strengthening the assurance of what will be. And so we're going to do this in Isaiah chapter 40 today, and I will just say this. Isaiah 40 is one of, if not my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Uh, It's one that I continually return to for hope. And in it we get this multifaceted picture of who our God is and how he works. And so let's get into it. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, to give a bit of context here, um, Isaiah was written during the Babylonian captivity. Uh, The people of Israel have been taken from their homes, and they're now being oppressed by this pagan nation. Now, God has used Babylon as his agent of judgment against Israel for their sins of idolatry and rebellion against him. And we know that God has done this because he told them in the other prophets that that's what he would do. So he said, I'm going to, to, to send this other nation to oppress you. That happened. And now they're in captivity, and and the prophet Isaiah now brings this message of hope. And so through Isaiah, God gives his people a picture of, of what he is doing while they are in exile. What he's going to do to rescue them. right? Not only from this nation, but ultimately, how he's going to bring about a complete salvation for his people. And this is what he's addressing here at the beginning of chapter 40. He begins with this repeated word, comfort, comfort, which is to accentuate that this is what this chapter is for. This is really what this whole section of Isaiah is for. It's to bring comfort to God's people. Now, throughout the prophets, the Hebrew word translated comfort here is usually this act of intervention by God. It's God doing something to bring about a peace that cannot be found without him. And that's important because there are plenty of situations in this life which seem hopeless If we're on our own. There's a lot of scenarios that you might find yourself in that are bigger than you. That seem like they're more than you can handle. And if you limit your hope to your own strength, you will never find comfort. Right? In the case of the people that this is written to originally, if they focused on their captivity alone, If all they looked at was their own inability to get themselves free from Babylon, then all they would ever find is despair. Feeling stuck and without hope to ever experience anything else. And so when God comes in and offers comfort, comfort, 
What he is saying to his people is that their hope is not limited to their ability. Instead, their hope comes from knowing that God is acting on their behalf. And in this, God promises to end warfare. That God's people will be pardoned. That the discipline of the Lord has been satisfied. He's saying the future will be different than the present. This is the foundation of hope. That God will lead his people to a better place. He will save them from their current bondage. will free them to shalom or the perfection of all things. No warfare, no pain, no tears. And with this foundation now, God is going to show his people what he is going to do to get them there. How he is going to bring them from where they are to this perfection that he has promised. This is what he says in verse 3. He says, A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall be made level and the rough places a plain. So we've already seen that God is going to bring comfort. That he's going to do it through divine intervention. That he's going to lead to the salvation of his people. And now we see that this begins with a voice in the wilderness. Now, in its original context, there's actually a lot of confusion as to who this voice is. A lot of theologians look at this and go, we don't actually know what Isaiah is speaking about here. And the prophet could have easily just jumped forward to the analogy of this road being prepared for the king. But by connecting it to a specific voice, he's alluding to an individual who will prepare the way. And so the prophecy of an individual who will usher in the Messiah, right, this is also echoed for us in the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." The promise is that God will send a forerunner, a prophet, one in the mold of Elijah who will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And his job will be to prepare the way for the Messiah. And we see the sort of work that he's going to do described in the words of Isaiah here. It says, Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain made low, uneven ground becoming level. Um, The imagery of the work being done here is this idea of sort of clearing out and flattening everything to make this perfect highway for the Messiah. Now, a typical pathway of this time period would sort of roughly follow the terrain, right? Most of the roads were not incredibly flat or easy to navigate. The exception would be the great roads formed for the royal processionals. Which is to say, when the kings and the emperors would return from battle, they would progress down these great paths that had been forced into the earth for them. These roads were wide to allow the army to sort of um, celebrate, like a parade, right? It's like a huge parade route into the great cities. And these paths would be carved into the mountains, and they would run smoothly across the valleys. This is a road fit for a king. And so this individual sent by God is going to prepare the way for a king. 
Now, you can see why with these sorts of prophecies, with these sorts of promises, why the people expected Jesus to be more powerful and triumphant than, than he was when he came. Why they expected him to be strong by earthly standards. And this is also why when God sends his forerunner, they don't necessarily know what to do with him. We see this in John chapter 1. As John the Baptist emerges and declares, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the people are intrigued, but also a little confused. Right? What kingdom? What king? Who are you? And so they send some people to find out who sent him, who he is, who does he represent? This is what it says in John 1.19. It says, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, it's interesting, when they come to him asking him questions, they're using the words of Malachi. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John denies that because he doesn't want them to get confused that he is going to be exactly like Elijah. That he's not what they expect. And so he points back to the promise of Isaiah 40. He says, I am the one whose job it is to prepare the way for the king. That's what I'm doing. Now, his road building was not done by laying stone or flattening earth, but by calling the people to repent. The way of the Lord that he is preparing is the people's hearts, not a physical road. He's there to remind them of God's promises, to call them into repentance. And he's there to point them to the one who has come now to fulfill the prophecies. This leads us then to the third part of the prophecy, that God's glory will be revealed through the Messiah. It says this in verse 5, it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So when this happens, right, when the Messiah comes, God is going to manifest his glory more completely to his people than ever before. Now, That's a pretty impressive statement when you realize that these are the same people who saw the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and the storm on Mount Sinai. He says, what is coming is going to be more glorious than what has ever been seen before. Because this time, God's glory will be revealed in incarnation. That is to say, God will become flesh and dwell among his creation. And he's going to be there for all people to see, right? Jew and Gentile alike. Now, the book of Hebrews opens by telling us this is exactly what happened. Verse 1 of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He reveals God more completely because he is the exact imprint of his nature. And he came in the world to both reveal God and to rescue it. 
And so the reason why God's people can have comfort, comfort, is because through Jesus they can know for sure that God acts to redeem. He does the work necessary to both save and reveal his glory and grace. And we see he does this through presence. He shows up. Now in the same way that the Messiah had been promised to Israel, we have been promised that Jesus will come again. Right In the same way that they were told he would save, we are promised that he will return to make all things new. And so in many ways, we are faced with the same challenge that they were. To maintain hope in the time of anticipation. Now, we have the benefit of being able to see all that God has done before, right? We get to see how how the promises of Isaiah were fulfilled in the baby in the manger. We can see how God has worked so we can better trust that he will work in the future. But the bigger issue of all this is is who this, how this helps us to understand who God is. And so this section ends by saying, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Which is a statement that is contingent on the mouth that speaks it. Right? It only is it great that the mouth of the Lord has spoken if the Lord is someone who we should listen to. And so the prophet goes on to show us why God's words can be trusted. This is what he says in verse 6. He says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So again, we have a voice crying out. um, But really, this voice is demanding that someone else cry out. Right? The voice says, cry. And this is quickly met with a challenge. Cry what? What shall I cry? What's going on here is the prophet is telling us that the promises of verses 1 through 5 demand a response. The fact that God says, I will comfort, I will save, I will reveal my glory. This is not something you can just smile and nod at. Oh, Christmas story, good story. Mm. We read it on Christmas morning and then forget about it the rest of the year. No! This is either the truth to organize your life around or something to be violently rejected. God is either our hope or he's just another thing that can't actually provide for us what we need. And so the prophet responds to the question, what shall I cry, with a contrast. And the contrast is between the temporary nature of this world and the eternality of God. He tells us that all flesh is grass. And then goes on to tell us what grass is, right? Grass withers. Now, in in this, he's not just telling us that grass dies so people die, though that is true. Just so you know, you're all going to die. Merry Christmas. But the nature of the prophecy, what he's talking about here, right, is, is rescue and redemption and purpose, what he's actually telling us here is, is the greatest human accomplishments, the best ideas and plans that we come up with. They're temporary. They're here one moment and gone the next. Which is to say the most powerful aspects of our world, the things that you look at and you're like, that's the most important thing. These are the smartest people. These are the best ideas that we have. 
They're only here for a time. And what this does is it severely weakens the powers of this world. It reminds us we don't need to fear them. We don't need to make our lives about overcoming them. And we should not put our hope in them. What we should do is is confidently live towards a greater and more sure power, which is the other side of the contrast. Right, the other side of the contrast is the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Right, everything that God says will happen. Everything that God plans will be. Every promise that he makes will come true. Isaiah makes this clear a little bit further on in Isaiah chapter 55. Verse 10, he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God sends out his word. He declares And it never returns void. It always accomplishes exactly what he has purposed. Right? This is what we call God's sovereignty, his absolute control over all things. And this is why we can have hope. We can have hope because our future is not in our hands. And it is not controlled by all of these other earthly powers. Ultimately, all of this will fade. And what will be left is the unchanging plan of God. Everything else dies, but the word of the Lord goes on forever. Now, in response to this now, the prophet gives us the words to declare. This is what he says in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So in response to who God is and what he has done and what he will do, God's people should, with with a voice of strength, cry out, We have a God of might, a God who acts on behalf of his people. He is a God of power, but also a God who gently tends his flock like a shepherd. Now, in order for us to confidently declare this and really to be excited about this, two things need to be true. The first thing that needs to be true is God has to be the most powerful. Right? If there's anything that can overpower God or undo his promises, then our hope will always be fragile. We'll always be waiting for the thing that's going to defeat God. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, from creation to exodus to the conquering of Canaan, through judges and kings, God has continually been showing his people that he is greater than every other power. It doesn't matter what they're up against. God goes... Stronger. And even here, in the midst of Babylonian captivity, as they're going, oh, we're stuck. 
God is reminding them that he is the reason why they are oppressed, which is sort of a tough pill to swallow. Right, the reality of suffering and struggling in this world leads many people to go sort of against the concept of sovereignty. They declare a good God would never allow things like this to happen. Yet this isn't what the Bible tells us. It makes it clear that sin causes pain and destruction and hurt, but none of this is ever apart from or in spite of God. God is always at work, comforting, disciplining, maturing, growing, using what is born out of human rebellion for his glory. Which leads us to the second thing that has to be true in order for us to have hope. And that's that God's plan must be for our good. Because even if you accept that God is all-powerful, that can still be really bad news if he's against you. Or if God is only acting on his own self-interest, then his power is not good news. It just becomes one more thing that we're up against. But the good news of the gospel is not just that the word of the Lord stands forever, but that the word of the Lord promises his people comfort. God knows what is best for us, and he is working out his plan to provide his people with eternal fulfillment. And so we don't need to give in to our doubts and start developing a backup plan, because we can trust in God's good word. And so hope becomes a mix of these two truths. Summarized very well by Paul in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8.28, Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And in response to that then, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, we can trust that all things are working together for those who are called according to his purpose. God is enacting his perfect plan and we are part of it. Paul says, what shall we then say? Which really echoes Isaiah's, what shall I cry? And Paul's answer is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this isn't to say there won't be people against you in your life. Um, The hope here is that it doesn't matter who's against you. There's no reason to fear. The assurance that we have cannot be taken away because it is safe in the hands of our sovereign God. And so as we look at this prophecy of Jesus given 500 years before his birth, we see it in a confirmation of who God is. It provides for us a hope that God is working in his time by his plan for our good. Now, I said at the beginning of this sermon that this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We haven't even gotten to the good part yet. Um, I'm not going to go through all of verses 12 through 28, which are rich. Um, I would actually, uh, yeah, I encourage you to spend some time in it this week. But it takes our first point here, that God is the most powerful. 
Isaiah chapter 40 puts God on display in a way that is undeniable. You know what? I'm just going to give you a taste. Verse 15, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. There is no question as you read through Isaiah 40 that God is the greatest and the most powerful. As a matter of fact, if you read through just this section, it can leave you with a little bit of like, I'm uncomfortable with this God. It sort of builds then to this crescendo. It keeps getting bigger and bigger, and then it leads to the last three verses, which assures us that all of this power is for us. The last three verses of Isaiah chapter 40 says this, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Now throughout this sermon, I have focused on the hope portion of this. I want to end with the anticipation portion of this. Um, Verse 31 tells us, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who wait. Now the waiting that it's talking about is not inaction. Um, It's allowing our efforts to flow from a proper motivation, to understand who God is and who we are, and to, to have these things in the right order. This is a reminder that the greatest power does not come from our own effort. No, it's God providing his strength to us. And so we wait on the Lord because we know we need him in order to act. Now this goes along with our reading of the law, uh, which began by assuring us of God's great power, how he has brought desolations on this earth. And that is used then to remind us that this comfort comes from knowing who he is. In verse 10, it said, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so our anticipation comes from knowing that God will act to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. We have a hopeful anticipation that knows that all will be well but also realizes that we don't really know the path to get there. And so we rest in God. We wait upon him. We are still. As we allow the God who will be exalted in the whole earth to shock us with how he plans to reveal his glory. Because what the prophecy and the virgin birth and the cross should make clear is that human beings have no clue. There are not a lot of people who are going like, I can see what God's going to do exactly. No. God's way is other. It's upside down to our sensibilities. And rather than understand it, what we need to do is trust him. We need to look at what Jesus has done and, what, and who God is and use this as the fuel for our hopeful anticipation. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's what we try to do here every week. Right, every week when we get together, we talk about blood and sacrifice, which is really upside down to a modern audience. 
It's also a good reminder that there's still a lot of things that we do not know and understand. But this allows us to be still, to reflect on God's amazing plan of incarnation and resurrection, of all that he has done both to show us his justice and his grace, but also how he has rescued his people back to himself to provide comfort. And so as you come forward to the communion table today, come acknowledging how shocking and upside down God's way really is. But also come to build your hopeful anticipation towards what he may do next. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for for giving us hope. Because there's so many times when if we only measure this world or only measure ourselves by, by what is right in front of us, things seem hopeless. Things seem dire. It all seems to be in a place where you are not being exalted and, and it almost sometimes feels like we are being defeated. And so we're so thankful for the promises that you have given us, the promises that are sure, the promises that will live on forever, that you will return to redeem all things. That there is nothing happening that you are not in control of. God, we pray that you would help build this hopeful anticipation in us. Help us to be a people who act towards what will be, not just towards what is right now. We thank you for allowing us to be able to think and believe and hope outside of ourselves. We thank you for Jesus and all that he did to make that possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.